Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce, and welcome to my YouTube channel, or if you're listening to me with your eardrums, welcome to my podcast, The Voice of Reason. Today's guest is Kenneth Zucker, who is a renowned psychologist and researcher focusing on childhood identity disorders, specifically gender identity disorders. In this interview, we speak about the role of gender and its relationship to psychology, to individuality, and to personality. We also get a little bit into the politics that are informing the gender identity discussion. Well, on a good days, it's a discussion, right? And uh, we talk about his philosophy with treating dysphoria. Dysphoria, as he defines it in this interview, is the opposite of euphoria. So that said, I did have a euphoric time with Kenneth, and there's nothing else we need to do to introduce you. So here you go. Here's Dr. Zucker. You've been working on gender identity and childhood development, but maybe it wasn't called gender identity until recently, or has it always been known as one's identity being uh, a gendered thing? Gender identity is a term made its way into the developmental literature in the early 1960s. Okay. So it's been around for a while. And on your CV, you've always studied psychology. And when did you start studying uh, developmental psychology or child psychology? Was that like a interest very early on in your career? Well, I was originally interested in clinical psychology back in the late 60s, early 70s. And at some point I decided that I wanted to do research that clinical psychology per se back then seemed a little too touchy-feely for me. Oh, really? So I wanted, I wanted to combine being a clinician and a researcher. So after I did my master's degree in clinical psychology, I did a PhD in developmental psychology at the University of Toronto. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, continued to get clinical training and became a registered psychologist. Mm -hmm. And when did gender become uh, one of the focuses of your research? Well, in the early 70s, I was sort of weird. It was the late 60s, the early 70s, and um, so I was sort of interested in things that were, that were at the margin in general. And I did my master's thesis on normative gender development in children, and then serendipitously, I came across Richard Green's 1974 book, 
called Sexual Identity Conflict in Children and Adults. Mm-hmm. And Richard looked pretty weird based on his picture, and the book seemed really interesting. I really had no idea what I was reading, but it seemed interesting. And then I moved to Toronto to do my PhD, and I wanted to spend time doing clinical work with children at what was then called the Clark Institute of Psychiatry, which was basically down the street from the University of Toronto. And the serendipitous event was that a child psychiatrist named Susan Bradley had just started a gender identity clinic for children and adolescents. Hmm. And I met with her and the rest, shall we say, is history. Yeah. Well, you so hit the I ground running on into that. This. Yeah. And what is it about um, what is it about gender that you found fascinating as a de- developmental process or as a way in which the identity of somebody or one's uh, personality is shaped or shaped into or gravitates towards? I think I had an interest in identity in general Hmm. and we know from the developmental literature that gender identity becomes part of the self very early in development and for example in bright two-year-olds if you ask them a question like, are you a girl or a boy? Bright two-year-olds can answer that question correctly. And if you ask them the counter question, are you the other gender? Hmm. They'll say no. Um, Hmm. And the awareness of gender comes fairly quickly after children develop the capacity to recognize the self. So, for example, in 18-month-olds, there's the classic recognition test where you put a little red dot on the kid's forehead and put the kid in front of a mirror. And if they're aware that they're looking at themselves, they'll notice that there's something different. And so they'll touch Mm -hmm. the little mark that you've colored in. And so... Gender seems to follow fairly quickly after this nascent recognition mm-hmm. of the self in general. And do you think that on the level of a two-year-old, there's a difference between what you're calling gender and what you're calling what we call sex? Is there like a hard link between gender and sex? And for most, if not all, children. Well, that that's a very it's an interesting question, you know, what is gender, what is sex, and yeah. people are constantly using yeah. the terms interchangeably. Um, but what early studies have shown, and I, I still think it's true to this day, is that once children become aware that we are largely a 
binary social group. You're either boy or girl or male or female. Kids want to figure out, well, hmm. if I'm in this group, what do other people in my group do? And so after kids, for example, are correctly labeling themselves as one gender or the other, we see things like the emergence of a preference to hang out with or play with kids mm. of their own gender. They develop gender role interests that are congruent with their self-labeled gender, even in things that adults would view as trivial, like mm. color preference. At a very young age, children yeah. show gender dimorphic color preferences. Do you, do you think that gender is an emergent phenomena or a social construct? Or is, is that even a useful sort of dichotomy when, you're, when we're looking at the emergent self and the gendered self? Well, I think gender always emerges in a social context. Okay, yeah. And the construction of gender is subjective in the sense that hmm. let's take the strong preference that girls have for the color pink and purple and boys avoid pink and purple. That's because in our culture, that's a stereotype color. If there was another culture where pink and purple we're not gender dimorphic. You wouldn't see mm -hmm. gender differences in color preference yeah. for pink okay. or purple. Yeah. I guess an, another variant of that question is if we did away with the gender binary tomorrow, would gender, do you think that gender would be reinvented by kids on a playground, by, by a naive uh, consciousness? Would, would there be a uh, kind of a sluicing into this dimorphic uh, identity and behavior set? Well, that's a great question. Um, it's essentially an experiment of nurture. Huh. So, for example, uh, one of the things I talked about last week in Vancouver is the new social phenomenon of some parents um, who probably didn't vote for Donald Trump um, who are wanting to not sex or gender their newborns. Yeah. And this has been tagged babies where parents are saying, we're not going to pigeonhole our kid and we might not even tell you the genitals of our kid. And we're going to let the kid decide mm -hmm. what their own gender is. And of course, kids grow up in a larger social context. It's not just parents. It's the neighborhood. It's the school. It's the peer group. So somebody needs to do a PhD yeah. on baby kids and see what happens. Yeah. Do you think that it would emerge? And I guess one of the frictions or uh, one of the things about gender or the gender argument or the 
the people who want to dismantle gender, they get blowback because it seems like people are really attached to these gender roles. And I wonder if it's a necessary attachment or if it's just some part of an accidental, this is how things have always been. This is something that they, this is how things should always be. Well, it's an ongoing debate between social constructionists and essentialists. Mm. And so, for example, circa 1970, the constructionist perspective carried a lot of weight. Uh, Feminist theory argued that gender roles were all socially constructed and they wanted to do away with some of the stereotypes associated with sex slash gender. That's on one pole. And then you have the essentialists, or let's call it the Lady Gaga born that way Hmm. kind of perspective. And if we telescope up to 2019, one of the interesting things in terms of politics is that many progressive parents and putatively liberal progressive clinicians have adopted an essentialist view of gender, Mm -hmm. which totally contradicts classical feminist theory, which Hmm. is one of the things that makes this area so migraine-inducing. It's very hard (laughs) to keep up with what's politically fashionable. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. And I guess, in a certain respect, you kind of have to keep up on what is politically fashionable because, at least pretty recently, you got some blowback on a political level uh, in in your clinic. You got fired because of politics and stuff. So you kind of... You can't really ignore this stuff. Do you find that you need to have a voice or that your expertise can actually inform this, uh, this discussion on, on how society views gender and, and how we can start making policies around that? Well, it is an intensely political area. That's for sure. And it really depends how one wants to spend one's life. Um, When I was much younger, I spent about six years on the left trying to make the world a better place. And I got tired of politics because I got the impression that the most strident voices were the people who had the highest verbal IQs, but They weren't necessarily the most intelligent. So I decided I just wanted to help individual people and be a scientist and stay out of politics. Yeah. That didn't quite work out. (laughs) Well, do you feel like you were Rumpelstiltskin in a way? Like you went into this deep hibernation meditating on the research and meditating on dealing with individuals and then you're kind of given a rude awakening into this political atmosphere or did you always kind of have to live in both worlds and in order to navigate your professional life? 
Oh, I was, I was always aware of the politics and, um, you know, I would say to my interns, you know, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. Okay. And because the area has become so political, a lot of people are terrified of working in this area. Yeah. Well, I know uh, a number of psychologists who avoid the topic of gender identity or, or transition at all, because even asking questions can be construed as, you know, or, or could possibly lead to accusations of conversion therapy to try to locate what the problem is, is something that seems to be off limits for some people. Yeah. I mean, starting in California and then spreading to other states and also in the province of Ontario, there are these uh, bills that have been passed where gender identity has been pinned on the tail of the, you hmm. shouldn't try to change a person's sexual orientation tail. Yeah. Um, and the activists behind that have been very savvy, but you know, if you read the legislation carefully when it comes to gender identity and I don't think everybody does read it carefully but the legislation is basically nonsense hmm. so um, if an adolescent for example comes to a clinician and says I'm confused about my gender can you help me there's nothing in the legislation that says that you can't explore anything and everything with the adolescent because she or he has the capacity to give consent. The legislation really has been written in a way hmm. to target any clinical work with very young children, children as young as three, because three-year-olds can't give informed consent. Um, but if you read the legislation carefully, it will say, you know, you shouldn't, you can't try to change somebody's gender identity, but it's okay to explore. So the explore clause hmm. is the option, um, but nobody reads it that carefully. Nonetheless, you know, the average clinician is still going to be terrified that they could get themselves into trouble and they would say to themselves, you know, hmm. I make in Toronto 200 bucks an hour in private practicing patients. I don't need this. Um, but... I think if you read the legislation carefully, you realize okay. there's flexibility to it. There's an interesting um, phenomena that I've seen as a possibility to explain this uh, resurgence of interest in, uh, or just surgence of interest in uh, a parent's um, focus on their child's gender identity. And it seems to be in a weird way, a uh, 
kind of almost a homophobic response of seeing, let's say, a very effeminate male. It's easier for some parents to see that effeminate male as really a female rather than to see them as as a, a, a effeminate homosexual. Um, have you seen that? And is that a valid uh, kind of... It, it just seems like a twisted way of getting back into people's uh, reaction to homosexuality. Um, and so it's easier for, for us to go along the gender identity route than the sexuality route. Well, for sure, <clears throat> I've observed that clinically. Okay. I don't know if anybody has studied it systematically, but I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, I might see, let's say I'm seeing a 15-year-old natal male who has a history of being a feminine boy. He reaches adolescence and realizes that he's sexually attracted to males. So he has to start thinking about, does that mean I'm gay? And I've certainly worked with adolescent males who would say, I would rather be transsexual or transgender Mm. Um, because my religious beliefs or my cultural background is really anti-homosexual. And by becoming a girl and being attracted to boys, then I'll be Hmm. normal. And I've worked with families where the parents say the same thing, that their religious beliefs are not consistent with having a gay or homosexual kid and they would rather their kid be transgender. Um, So one certainly always has to explore is that a mechanism that might be pushing the kid's gender dysphoria. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'd like to ask this question of uh, you professional people, but what do you, what is the relationship between gender and sexuality? Um, is, is it because you said that one, a a child very early in life identifies as a sex, as a boy or girl, or starts to assume a gender, it presumably sexuality doesn't come until later. So is there a, a reinforcement when one reaches adolescence, when sexuality emerges that then kind of, uh, cements more one's gender uh, behaviors? Well, in childhood, over many years, psychologists have studied sex or gender differences in various behaviors. Peer preferences, toy preferences, roles in fantasy play, Hmm. what you like to dress up in when you're doing pretend play, etc., And on average, there are very strong sex-slash-gender differences in these behaviors. Um, Hmm. We talk about effect sizes in psychology, and they're pretty substantial. And over many years, what we have a lot of data on now is that there is an association between gender-type behavior in childhood 
and later sexual orientation. So if, for example, you look at retrospective studies of gay men and straight men in terms of what kinds of behaviors did you engage in as a child and the same thing for lesbian women and straight women, uh, gay men and lesbian women on average recall engaging in Hmm. what we call cross-gender type behavior more than straight people. Um, And that's now been documented both in retrospective studies and prospective studies. So the database is beyond uh, repute. Hmm. Nobody really argues against it anymore. Now, does it mean that the gender behavior causes sexual orientation Hmm. to differentiate one way or the other, or are they both caused by a common third factor? Mm -hmm. What do you think? Is it like a, like a gendered brain kind of thing? Well, I mean, theoretically my views about psychosexual differentiation is sort of fence sitting. I think, both biological and psychosocial hmm. factors are involved. So I'm not a hardcore social constructionist or a hardcore essentialist. Hmm. And I've done research on both biological factors and psychosocial factors, and I think they both contribute. Hmm. I've noticed this watching your lectures that you seem to never take a strong position, but it doesn't seem like that means that you're not informed or that you want to hold both. It seems from, from my perspective of you, it seems like you take everything on a case by case basis. Would do you agree with that? Like it really depends on the individual that you're sitting with when we talk about these, gen- these questions about sexuality, gender and et cetera. Correct. Well, I think when you're working clinically, you're always making a case formulation on an individual basis. So in some cases, I might give more weight to one factor. And in another case, I might give more weight to another factor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the the goal of therapy being the I guess the relieving of distress and then the formulation or the uh, assisting in an individual with uh, gaining tools to, uh, you know, have a successful life would, is that like a apt way of putting like, what is the therapeutic process about? Right. Yeah, actually I wanted to mention that in relation to the legislation, um, I don't try to change anybody's gender identity, but What I'm interested in when it makes sense with an individual child slash adolescent and family is what's the best way to reduce gender dysphoria. Okay. Because that's why they have come to see me. And by definition, I think gender dysphoria is distressing. I mean, the word dysphoria means that you're not happy about something. Okay, yeah. You don't have gender euphoria. Yeah, okay, yeah. And in terms of my therapeutic approach, it 
has a very strong developmental focus to it. So how I might think about, hmm. okay, what are the options for reducing gender dysphoria in a three-year-old are going to be very different from what I might think about with a 13-year-old hmm. or a 20-year-old. And I think that neglect of developmental factors is a real mistake Mm. And I think um, that is happening, I think, more and more where there is a neglect of developmental considerations. And I think that's wrong. Mm -hmm. And how do you conceptualize briefly or not so briefly? We have time. Uh, what What is the developmental mindset? Like, like you, you have a, a knowledge base of where a kid should be or kind of like usually is and then where they're going to end up going just by studying so many arcs of development? Or is it that there will be like this mutation uh, going on through time? Like, like every individual is going to sh be shaped through time so that making any decision right early in life might not necessarily be the right decision for somebody's later development. Right. So, I mean, one of the things that has, let's say, reinforced my belief in the importance of developmental considerations is the set of follow-up studies of children. So, by children, I mean kids who <clears throat> were seen for an assessment or were part of a research study for the first time, anywhere between the age of 3 and 12. And in our own follow-up studies, the mean age of the kids when they were first seen was 7. Mm -hmm. And these follow-up studies then reassess kids when they're in their late adolescence, young adulthood. And the majority of the follow-up studies of young children with gender dysphoria or who had a lot of marked gender nonconformity found that most of them did not grow up and continue to have gender dysphoria. So one common percentage that one sees in Twitter land and elsewhere is 80% of children desist. They don't persist. Mm -hmm. Now, if gender identity was fixed and locked in at the age of three or four or five, one wouldn't expect to find such a high rate of desistance. Okay. Hmm. So that's one factor that has influenced me. Because these mm. set of findings are pretty, I think, uh, similar across different studies. Um, but then, suppose you see an adolescent for the first time in adolescence. So they were never seen in childhood, and they present with gender dysphoria. If you look at some of the older studies, um, one finds that these kids 
are much more likely to continue to have gender dysphoria unless they socially transition to the other gender and receive hmm. some type of biomedical treatment. So one of the things that I always have to remind people is you can't use the child follow-up data to make a prognosis around adolescents uh, who were never seen in childhood because things may have become hmm. much more consolidated. And hmm. this is even more important now because of the appearance of this new subgroup, mainly of adolescent females with what people are now calling rapid onset gender dysphoria. Because these kids present a real challenge to classical developmental theory about gender hmm. because their parents are very clear that during childhood their kid did not have gender dysphoria and they weren't even necessarily gender nonconforming. They would say their kid was very gender typical. Hmm. And then around grade seven, eight, even later, these kids start to experience gender dysphoria or self-identify as transgender. And it's very hard to know, because we don't have the data yet, are these rapid onset or late onset kids as likely to persist in gender dysphoria as adolescents with gender dysphoria who have the more classical okay. developmental pathway. Okay. You, you use the word consolidate. Uh, maybe you threw that, threw that out. Is that mm -hmm. like a clinical term, like the consolidation of, of one's gender identity or like how one builds one's identity um, is, is a form of consolidation? Yeah, I mean... It, you know, if you do studies of very little kids, they have a very primitive understanding of gender. So they might be able to self-label themselves as boys or girls. But then if you, let's say you said to Johnny, Johnny, if you were uh, girls' clothes, would you be a boy or a girl? Johnny might say, oh, I would turn into a girl. Hmm. because I'm wearing a dress. Or uh, if you said to a girl, if you played with boy toys, would you be a girl or a boy? A very young kid might say, oh, I would turn into a boy. So some people talk about how children don't consolidate an understanding of gender constancy until around the age of five, six, or seven, where they realize that surface expressions of gender don't change who you are. Huh. But because kids grow up in a gendered world, uh, they think about these things and wonder, well, if I do this, does that mean I'm really the other gender or what? And in a sense, mm -hmm. I think there might be a reciprocal interaction between your internal sense of self 
and your surface gender expression. They feed back on each other. So, for example, I remember seeing a seven-year-old boy many years ago who had a strong desire to be a girl. And I said, well, how come? And he said, well, boys sweat and girls don't. So I want to be a girl. Or hmm. girls like to read more than boys. And I really like to read, so I want to be a girl. So hmm. with a kid like that, you might formulate that he had these very rigid notions of gender. It was either or. And so okay. yeah. one goal would be help the kid to think more flexibly. Hmm. Girls do sweat. <laughs> do, do they, though, really? Do we have any clinical evidence of that? Some little boys with gender dysphoria will say, you know, girls are nice and boys are mean. Yeah. And you say, well, you know, not hmm. all girls are nice. This really reminds me of uh, current public discourse. Like, everybody's look at, uh, looking at the world like a seven-year-old. Men are evil or... Women should be believed, like these absolute statements, they bang around in our cultural conversation, um, but they have the same kind of uh, nuance to them as, as a seven-year-old's projection of what reality is. Binary thinking is problematic. Well, yeah, I guess in a, in a way it's, uh, it's, it's rudimentary, but it's pretty stable, so it's, it's a good place to start. Uh, the binary is a good place to start in order to, to start to formulate higher. And, higher and, and, and some developmental psychologists actually make that exact point that preschool kids think in a very binary way as a way to consolidate a secure hmm. sense of self. And as they get older, they start to think hmm. more flexibly. Hmm. Do you think that... Um... Well, I guess, again, it's hard to ask questions because uh, it's it's all about individual. Uh, it seems like the individual's primary and most important. So asking about, like, what is society uh, without gender or, or what is the role of gender in society? Do you have, like, ideas about that? Or are those even interesting questions for you? Like, is, is femininity and masculinity, like, these just part of what we are as creatures or are they kind of just accidents of, of culture? Well, you're essentially asking, is there an evolutionary function to gender or so, yeah. is there a social function to gender? Um, so I'm assuming evolutionary psychologists would say that gender probably has something to do with reproduction, but I'm not an evolutionary psychologist per se. So hmm. I want to stay away from that. And then hmm. you're also asking a philosophical question which, and I'm not a philosopher, so uh, I'll stay away from that. But as a clinician and as a developmental clinician, Gender, in whatever form it takes, seems like a very important part of the self. So, you know, if you're working with a young adolescent who says, I have no gender, well, you can only have no gender if there is gender. So it's always positioned against something. Yeah. And 
what I want to explore mm. clinically is, you know, what does it mean to say that you have no gender? And sometimes you might find that it's related to extreme anxiety about sexuality, um, that mm. you don't want to be gendered because the whole idea of being a sexual person is terrifying to the kid. So they sort of want to disappear. Hmm. And so to, to be nothing or to claim the mantle of non-binary is a way of, of disappearing. It seems like also a way of standing out too. It can be, have a fashion component too, especially I'm talking about like in a college age, uh, kids that, that come out as they, thems, um, seems kind of a, a there's a fashion statement in that it, it's uh, I'm, I'm neither because I'm something special I'm something different well I think that's seeped down into adolescence because we're all now observing this explosion hmm. of adolescents who are coming out either as transgender or as having gender dysphoria hmm. or both um, but just to go back I mean I once saw an adolescent female who said, I don't want to be a boy. Um, I want to be a tomato. And what it meant to her was she wanted to be asexual. So nobody would look at her. Uh, nobody would approach her. Yeah. Because she was terrified about mm. the whole idea of sexual feelings. Now, the other thing you're raising mm -hmm. is nowadays, um, more kids are declaring, let's say, they're non-binary with regard to gender identity, or they're claiming that they're pansexual, um, which is not the same thing as bisexual. Yeah, it means you don't have sex with a toaster, right? Like anything is a sexual object. Is that what pansexual is? Um. Well, probably not too many want to have sex with toasters, but what they would say is that they're attracted to a person uh, regardless of whether they are male or female or have specific bodies. Okay. So hmm. I might be attracted to you because I like your glasses. It doesn't okay. matter to me okay. that... Now, the problem is that I think that these labels for a lot of kids happen, have, have become a site for hmm. identity exploration in general. Okay. So, just to hmm. finish up, suppose you had a sample of 114-year-old girls who self-identify as pansexual and followed them up when they're 16, 18, and 20. We have no idea how many of them would continue to self-label as pansexual and what it would actually mean for their interpersonal, romantic, and sexual life. We have no idea. Hmm. We just don't have the data. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It seems... Uh, it's. It almost seems that, that in mass, adolescents um, find... Uh, a point in society, and maybe this is just a Western thing, but they find a point in society that's ripe for exploration that hasn't been explored by previous generations. And with, uh, with homosexuality now kind of being uh, accepted and not that 
big of a con- controversial thing. Um, it, it kind of opens up sexuality as another site of, of finding individuality in a unique way. Is that necessarily a Western thing? Do you think that that's just a part of, of adolescence is to, to try to find something that's edgy, I guess, in a way, and exploit that for, for extra excitement points while one is developing their self? Um, well, I can't comment too much on non-Western cultures, but what I can say is absolutely this has become a phenomenon in the West that we're seeing in North America, Europe, the UK, Scandinavia. It's certainly uh, in the era of the internet and social media, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of cultural transmission and you see it everywhere. Okay. Um, And yeah, I think, uh, you know, sometimes I joke around with parents and say, you know, if this was 1970, your kid would be in Haight-Ashbury. Yeah. If it was the 90s, maybe they would be goth. Yeah. And it's part of trying to differentiate, let's say, kids who really have a stable uh, transgender identity and consolidated gender dysphoria that's not going to dissipate versus kids who are just trying to figure out who am I in general. It seems like with the kids who are trying to figure out who they are in general, it it is a fad or a, a trend in a way. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on how this particular fad or trend or or something that people use to play with and experiment with identity, um, do you think it'll have negative uh, impacts on on somebody's personal development to be playing around with gender and sexuality? Or do you think that it's just something that one goes through and, and doesn't really have any lasting out, uh, negative outcomes? Well, clinically, I don't know if I want to call it a fad. What I okay. might yeah. say is that some of these kids are vulnerable adolescents from a psychological and psychiatric perspective that they have a variety of mental health issues and these kids have struggled and they're looking for a place where they will feel more comfortable and accepted. Now, where it gets tricky, of course, is um, with gender dysphoria in adolescence, we now have the availability of biomedical treatments, yeah. hormonal suppression, uh, gender affirming hormone treatment, gender affirming surgery. And uh, a lot of parents that I work with worry that at least some clinicians are fast tracking their kids on a biomedical treatment pathway without giving sufficient time for exploration to see, is this really the only option? Um, And one reads about more and more that, for example, 
female-born adolescents are having bilateral mastectomy hmm. below the age of 16. I mean, this is an irreversible treatment, and one really wants to be sure uh, about where a hmm. kid is at. And, you know, the field is also hampered by the complexity of doing randomized controlled treatment trials. Uh, there would be a lot of problems in implementing them. Hmm. But, you know, to go back, you know, to your question, um, biomedical treatment is a little different than hanging out uh, in goth clothing and yeah. getting a few tattoos. Yeah. Why do you think that the medical industry has... Uh, seems to be on the track of embracing fast tracking or is that something to be worried about or are these uh kind of just so, such shocking uh small little events that they're blown out of proportion well that requires going back a few decades um when we would see adolescents in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and we didn't see very many back then. We always saw way more little kids than adolescents. But hmm. at that time, I think the perspective that evolved in our clinic was that the adolescents we were seeing were pretty locked in to feeling more like the other gender. Um, and other than maybe socially transitioning, there were no biomedical options until they became legal adults at the age of 18. And even then, it wasn't that easy to get biomedical treatment. Then in the 90s, the, the mid-90s, there was this idea of uh, hormonal suppression to kind of delay puberty or, or put it on hold while an adolescent could continue to explore their gender identity. And hmm. that interested us in Toronto because at the time we felt that many of the adolescents we were seeing, not all of them, were pretty consolidated. So we actually were the first clinic in North America to systematically hmm. recommend hormonal suppression in a in about 60% of the adolescents we were seeing. How typic typically, how long does hormonal suppression go on? Is that, what, two years or a year, or is it just case by case? Well, I think that's always the judgment of the physician who's prescribing it, but certainly two years is not unheard of. I've seen some kids on it for three years. Um, hmm. But... The availability of hormonal suppression, I think, attracted a lot of interest from, for example, adolescent medicine doctors because it was something that they could do and mm -hmm. it was a lot more concrete than spending time in psychotherapy with kids. Um, mm -hmm. And what I think the early studies showed was that in carefully evaluated 
patients, it was effective. It reduced gender dysphoria. It improved well-being. Mm. But the field has now exploded. And in terms of just the sheer number of adolescents being referred, we now have this whole new group of these rapid-onset kids. And there still are very few systematic studies evaluating uh, the effectiveness of things like hormonal suppression and people have lots of worries about side effects. And because I think the population of adolescents with gender dysphoria has become more Mm -hmm. heterogeneous, there has to be a lot of intense discussion as to who are the best candidates. So for example, you know, my Dutch colleagues, I'm very good friends with a bunch of them and we do some research together. They do very careful evaluations and not all of the adolescents that they see uh, are recommended to start on hormonal suppression. So it's not an either or treatment approach uh, among the Dutch, but Hmm. what I sense uh, what's evolved as it's kind of spread into the general medical community, like a progressive pediatrician will sit down with a kid for literally 20 minutes and want to write a prescription for hormonal suppression without taking a developmental history, without being mindful that these kids have various mental health issues. Hmm. One has to be a little worried about that. Yeah. Do you think that the medical community is prone to uh, finding an answer uh, to a complex solution and then just replicating that answer uh, across the board? Uh, Do you think that... that like you were just saying, that seems to happen every 20 years. There's this new solution for a uh, for a very complex problem. Or maybe even there's uh, there's there's a bunch of a kid has a bunch of problems and they lock on to one thing as the problem. Because if if the if the site of all my anxiety is that I'm supposed to be the other sex, then then that that releases me from having to wrestle with all these complexities. And then on the other side, there's a feedback with the doctor. Well, if it is just that one, that, that all those problems are that one thing, then we just write them a prescription. Well, one of my colleagues once said sex and gender confound the best of minds. Mm. And another colleague said, when it comes to sex and gender, people stop thinking. Hmm. Uh, why why is that why do you think that is the case is it something that's so fundamental to our society and to our individuality that we can't really look at it is it just one of those things that we're unable to look at because we're always looking through it well you know it sort of reminds me of the mid to late 80s and early 90s when a lot of well-meaning clinicians literally almost tagged any aberrant behavior in a young child with the possibility that they'd been sexually abused. 
a kid's starting to do poorly in school mm-hmm. or a kid is depressed or a kid is engaging in some sexualized behavior. There was this like instinctive uh, inference, well, maybe this child has been sexually abused. And that turned out to be so grossly simplistic. Um, Hmm. But it caused a lot of trouble back then. And so now um, what we're seeing here is let's say a a five or six year old kid is engaging in gender variant behavior. People are putting a tag on the child. Oh, Hmm. maybe your child is trans. So they're imposing an identity on the child. Hmm. The child may well not have herself or himself, but by imposing that label, one is also, reducing complexity it puts the child into a, a little box and you make assumptions from there and mm-hmm. so i think there is a trend in some quarters to not think in a very deep way so you know some parents tell me you know they've met with clinicians who say to them, well, if your kid says that she's trans, she is. I just don't know what that means. Hmm. Because what if that kid in two years uh, no longer says that they're trans? Um, That would be a proof of principle that one necessarily isn't just is, that Hmm. identity continues to be a constructive process mm-hmm. and if you don't ask if you don't explore with a kid you'll never know what's going on in their internal world in your research and in your knowing is sexuality more set than identity you said that that uh, identity is a constructive process and and i think that that one of the hardest things for us to do as thinking beings is to understand things as a process or as a as something that changes over time we like to say that this is that this is that is sexuality something that's more or less innate or usually has a, a more stable life in the individual than one's um identity I'll tell you what I believe. Um, I think with regard to males, I think sexual orientation is largely immutable. That Hmm. it doesn't really change over time in terms of the underlying erotic preference. Uh, That doesn't mean a male can behave in sexually different ways, but what is their primary Hmm. uh, source of arousal is relatively stable. Um, With regard to women, I think that the current perspective is that sexual orientation is more flexible than it is in men. And that's been documented over the last 
20 plus years by different researchers who are studying sexual orientation through adolescence and adulthood in women. So uh, one of the most uh, serious researchers in that area is a psychologist named Lisa Diamond, who says that basically we have to throw out the immutability perspective. And she now says that's the case not only for women, but for men. Another psychologist who studies sexual psychophysiology in women, Meredith Chivers, talks about how women are more varied than men in terms of what will arouse them sexually. So there may well be sex differences in mutability, immutability. Hmm. I spoke with a uh, biologist last week who studies mice and, and development of uh, the impact of testosterone, the impact of sex on development. And uh, later on in our conversation, she spoke about how um, it's been a pattern in research, uh, not only among mice, but in other fields of research that uh, we, we end up studying men a lot more than, than females. And, and she said that one of the things that is uh, kind of the case with with rat with rats specifically is that it's much um it's much easier to study a male than a female rat at least uh because the female's going through all these different cycles it seems like the female has another couple layers of complexity but there's the caveat that said that that it's easier to simplify the male uh, whereas the female has a lot of variability going on in her biology. Have you seen that, in, uh, that it's the case that, that, that females in general are more complex or more malleable than men outside of just sexuality, but with regards to identity and, and how, they, uh, how they, they shape their identity over time? Or is it just kind of everybody's pretty stupidly complex? Well, you know, nowadays it'll be hard to get grants if you don't study both sexes and both genders. Um, hmm. Well, I'm thinking about, you know, this new surge of adolescents who are presenting with gender dysphoria or a transgender identity where the sex ratio has tilted from one that used to favor males to one that favors females. And, you know, there are some clinics that are reporting sex ratios of you know six to nine to one of mm. every female to male. Now, does that reflect that adolescent girls are struggling more with gender slash identity than males? Because for males their socialization environment has been more rigid, whereas for females it's been a little more flexible and maybe at hmm. the end of the bell curve it's causing more hmm. adolescent girls to question who they are. Maybe. I don't know if hmm. we have a definitive answer to that yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um. I wanted to speak to you about um, your uh, 
the development of of your clinical practice and and how um, this is I don't have a total formulation and I don't know if how much time we have to like actually explore this. Uh, one of my friends asked uh, me to ask you how the uh, over time over your career how the kind of the, the therapeutic um, relationship has, has changed or, or developed in that time and with regards to, I guess, uh, assessment and then navigating the, uh, the individual that you're dealing with towards uh, dealing with their dysphoria or their gender identity. Well, that makes the assumption that I remember what I thought in the <laughs> 1970s or 80s. Um, I think that, you know, things evolve. I mean, uh, I'm sure whatever it was that I was thinking as a young graduate student in the seventies, hopefully isn't identical to what I think about nowadays, Hmm. but I think there are certain constants in terms of the importance of doing a, a comprehensive assessment, not only with the child, but with the family. Um, I think my, I don't think my hmm. developmental perspective uh, has changed. I mean, maybe in the 70s or 80s, I don't even know if I l- labeled it that way. Yeah. Um, but certainly, the developmental perspective is still very important. I think where things have changed is that when one sees different types of families and situations, you may not necessarily be able to formulate uh, a therapeutic recommendation that is going to be identical from one family to the next. So Hmm. if we are in 2019, the example that comes to mind uh, with regard to children is that, you know, we now have a subgroup of parents who have a child with gender dysphoria or gender dysphoria in the making who have decided either on their own or uh, in collaboration with a clinician or at the recommendation of a clinician to socially transition their child from one gender to another and sometimes at a very young age at three or five or seven and I think that the kind of therapeutic help that parents who have adopted that perspective is going to be very different than Hmm. a family that doesn't want to reduce their child's gender dysphoria Hmm. in that way. Um, And so I think one has to understand and respect where Interesting. each family is coming from. But um, what the developmental perspective has led me to think is that if you don't socially transition your kid at the age of three or, or, or at age four, 
there are probably more options open to you than if you do. And that socially transitioning a kid at the age of three or four or five is probably going to consolidate that developmental pathway. Okay. And my own mm. philosophy on that is that I work with families in terms of where they're at and want to offer them help uh, in ways that they think will be helpful. So I don't impose a particular perspective on all families. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Uh, the, I guess the, the shifts in the, uh, in the larger public sphere introduce another layer of complexity um, to, to know how your recommendations are going to be acted out based on the belief structures of the family. Do you think that, yeah, and I the... think that basically what's happening is that parents bring, before they even come to see a clinician or go to a particular clinic, they have their own philosophical beliefs hmm. and their own theoretical models. And they're going to look for a clinician who they think shares their beliefs. Yeah. It's just, that makes sense. I mean, adults who have depression might, the only way that they're going to be helped is medication. Other adults just want to see somebody in talk therapy. Some adults want both. So they're going to look for a clinician who shares their perspective. Yeah. And that's what the free world is all about. Yeah, I guess so. Um, let the market decide. Um, is there like a... A, a base of literature or a book or some sort of uh, you know collection of essays or papers on this term consolidation. I, I find it fascinating. There's something very useful, it seems, about just that concept. Is that just been around for several decades, or is this a useful tool that you've picked up along the way somewhere? I don't know. I mean, I'm just free associating now. Yeah. I mean. Eric Erickson wrote about identity back in the 50s. Um, and then I think some developmental psychologists who studied adolescence you know, talked about the consolidation of ego identity. Okay. Um, I'd have to dig around to see right. if that term... Who uses that term, or is it just kind of a generic but, verb that I've? But by it, you mean that in in with regards to the developmental model, the uh, the psyche is going through different stages of uh, kind of building itself, and and consolidation is what you mean, like where where these different concepts just come in and, and form a binding structure that is just repeated through time. Um, that just becomes a part of one's character or personality. Is that kind yeah, of I mean, what I think, happens? I think if we think about our sense of self in general, um, we would probably say that the way we are now bears certain similarities to the way we were 10 years ago, 30 years ago. But there are other aspects of one's identity that are more flexible. So, for example, sometimes I talk about political identity. Hmm. Um, hmm. 
when people were 20, they might have been communists, but at 40, they're Republicans. Yeah. Okay. So there's or, these different layers of, of, of how one identifies, depending on the context, if and depending on the social context, how you plug into other things. Yeah. But it seems like, like a gender identity, if we subtract the social level of it, there's aspects of the identity of how I plug into myself or how I, I feel okay with myself. And and those things uh, don't seem as, as malleable, or maybe they are as malleable. Well, you know, it's interesting at the... Uh public venue last week in Vancouver when Megan Murphy gave her talk, she said she didn't have a gender identity. Um, she was a woman with personality traits. And uh, that's a, a little different than my own thinking over the mm. years where I've always had this perspective that gender identity is an early core part of one's sense of self that remains for most people pretty stable over the course of development um hmm. is that simply because there are these internal structures that get consolidated or is there also continuous feedback from the social environment um hmm. where you're constantly being reinforced for how yeah. you perform your gender identity, yeah, as Judith Butler would say. Yeah, right. What's next on your plate? Do you have a another uh, book coming out, or, or papers, or, or a conference tour, or are you just uh, plugging along with your private practice or your clinic? No, I, I'm in my solo private practice. I'm working on several projects. Um, I'm working on a big meta-analysis of the striking change in the sex ratio of adolescents with gender dysphoria. I'm working on some papers pertaining to suicidality in mm. adolescents because that's a big topic, and I think there's a lot of misleading information out there about... Uh, suicidality, vulnerability in adolescents with gender dysphoria. Okay. Um, and uh, I'm involved in uh, an MRI study of adolescents with gender dysphoria, looking at oh. what do regions of interest in the brain look like in adolescents with gender dysphoria prior to any type of biomedical treatment. And what do those regions of interest look like in relation to adolescents without gender dysphoria? Hmm. Um, Are you guys able to collect a solid enough data set on that question? It's going to be a great study. Oh, wow. Once it's done. That sounds fascinating. When is that? Uh, do, you, do you perceive that to be finished and out there? Well... Know? As I say to my uh, former postdoc, uh, who is the, now he's the PI of the study, um, I told him, I just want to do a really good MRI study. I don't care what the results look like. And I'd like 
to finish it before I die. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, hopefully uh, you and uh, George R.R. R. Martin can can get your projects done before that terminal illness of life catches up to you. Well, thanks a lot, Dr. Zucker. I, I'm going to, I got to go off to work. Thanks for your time. Um, and for all your information, is there something that you think that is like the, the most important thing for people to keep in mind about this topic? Um, uh, specifically, I guess, let's just say teens with gender dysphoria. Like what's something that, that you think is really something that, that the, the parents or the teens should keep in mind about it? Um, well, one would be the developmental perspective. And then the second is recognizing that, uh, especially nowadays with the adolescents with gender dysphoria, with the increased heterogeneity, that one treatment size does not fit all. Hmm. And I would say that as much to parents, I would say that as much to clinicians as I would to parents. Mm-hmm. And to patients too. Well, cool. Cool. Um, I'm going to let you go then. Thanks a lot for your time. Nice talking to you. Yeah, have a good Thanks day. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Ciao. Take care. Bye. Bye.